Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Bart Starr of the Green Bay Packers. Go, you Packers, go! Yes, that is the fight song of the Green Bay Packers. I believe it's called Go Packers Go. I mean, fight songs never have good names. I don't know. I guess On Wisconsin is a, a decent name. But I mean, you know, Cole Porter wrote Bulldog Bow Wow Wow. So what are you going to do? Anyway, we're here to talk about football. But okay, there are people who listen to the show and they don't like sports and they're about to turn the radio off. I can see you, Patrice Fitzgerald. I can see you doing that. This is going to be about more than just sports. I know I always say this, but this has drama. This has guest hosting Jeopardy. This has Shailene Woodley. This has a lot of things that you people who hate sports might be interested in. But it does all start with Aaron Rodgers. In 2014, when the team was playing a little bit off, he famously looked into the camera and told the Packers fans to R-E-L-A-X. Well, try telling Packer fans to do that now because they're walking around Titletown uh, like zombies because uh, as the NL draft unfold, NFL draft uh, unfolded last weekend, and the NFL draft has turned into this massive cultural event now. Uh, it had The opening round had 2 million more viewers than the Oscars. I realize the Oscars isn't the benchmark it used to be either, but, um, but as that draft unfolded, uh, Rogers made news of a different kind. Uh, he basically said that he was not going to come back uh, to play for the Packers. Uh, he didn't say it. Excuse me. He allowed it to be said. It was leaked out. It was it was offered up in a way that made it clear that the people who were saying this were saying this with his blessing. And he certainly hasn't denied it either. So here to talk about this and what it has to do with the game show Jeopardy and what it does or doesn't have to do with the actress Shailene Woodley uh, and lots of other things as well is Ben Spiegel, a sports reporter for the New York Times. Uh, he's been covering the NFL since 2011. Welcome to our show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So um, maybe we should begin, well, I may, maybe just to set the stage for people. I mean, you could say a few words about just how good Aaron Rodgers was. He was the NFL MVP last year. There's essentially no history of NFL MVPs not wanting to go back to the team where they were just the MVP of the entire league. But, I mean, give people a sense of how good a quarterback Aaron Rodgers is. Aaron Rodgers is one of the best quarterbacks of all time and to say that he might be the best quarterback if in Packers history for a franchise that had Brett Favre and Bart Starr among others is I would say could be a pretty fair statement I know you're a Packers fan yourself Colin so I don't think I'm speaking out of school when I say that he is he is probably one of the most talented quarterbacks in the NFL I remember I think Ian O'Connor of the New York Post now, he said he think he wrote something a while back that's, that kind of quoted Tom Brady saying that if you would put Aaron Rodgers in New England instead of him, 
that he would have won even more championships. I mean, he is, he's a wizard with the ball, everything that you could want in a quarterback. And so for him to have this major, major disagreement with the only organization that he's ever played for come out in very stark and ugly terms in public on Thursday, a few hours before the NFL draft is a major, major event. Yeah, I've always wondered about that thing Brady said, because it's a little bit like saying, you know, if Charlie Parker had played for John Philip Sousa's bands, he would have sold a lot more <laughs> records or something. I mean, you know, the, the Patriots kind of play in 4-4 time, and, and, and Rodgers kind of is Charlie Parker. I mean, he's, he's inventive, he's instinctual, he does a lot of things that other quarterbacks probably wouldn't try to do, uh, and, and they work very well. But yes, particularly now that the luster has fallen off Brett's far with his grotesque gro- Grotesquely unhelpful comments about race in America. There's no question about who everybody's favorite quarterback is. Yeah, it is Aaron Rodgers. And so, but you know, there's another thing about Rodgers. I don't know if he's Irish American at all, but there's, you know, this thing, you know, a joke about Irish Alzheimer's where you forget everything but your grudges. And there's a way in which he, you know, he holds grudges. He's still pissed off that he fell to 24 in the first round uh, of his draft year. He's he's especially annoyed that the 49ers didn't take him with the very first pick. Uh, he's He gets mad at his family. He returns Christmas presents. Um, I mean, he gets mad about stuff. He's really known for steering receivers down when they don't run their roots with just crisp perfection. And, and there's a sense now that there's some kind of primal wound, and it probably dates back to last year's draft. And maybe you should explain what happened last year. Sure. So last year in the draft, which happened three months after the Packers got destroyed in the NFC Championship game by San Francisco, that they went ahead and traded up in the first round to draft a quarterback from Utah State, a guy by the name of Jordan Love. Now, teams have to act in their best interest, both in the short term and the long term. So the Packers general manager, Brian Gutekunst, figured that Aaron Rodgers is 37 years old. He's kind of, uh, or 36 at that point, I, I suppose. And he's kind of, you know, nearing the end of his career. Why don't we go ahead and get someone to kind of sit behind Aaron for a year or two and then get rid of Aaron and Jordan Love will go ahead and replace him. And in the perfect world, I think that's what Brian and the Packers wanted to do. The Packers messed up on a few fronts. The first is which they went ahead and made this draft decision last year without communicating their intentions to Aaron Rodgers, which I would probably call a major faux pas. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even the Patriots, when they went ahead and drafted Jimmy Garoppolo, who was primed to potentially be Tom Brady's successor in 2014 in New England, that at least they had the courtesy to go ahead and tell Tom what they were going to go ahead and do. Now, Brady went ahead and won three more Super Bowls after they drafted Garoppolo in New England and ultimately forced them to go ahead and trade him. Um, so the Packers had a history of drafting defensive players in the first round and it doesn't really matter where you draft players. As long as you draft good players, you can draft good players in the second, third, fourth, fifth, whatever rounds. And as long as they're good, you're going to find a use for them. But I think there was an urgency coming off how close they got to reaching the Super Bowl that year that Rogers perhaps felt there was a little bit antagonistic to not only draft his potential successor without telling him, 
but also with their next pick draft a running back who is basically a third string player and say, okay, we're really planning for the future. We don't really care about this team. Anyway, Rogers goes ahead and has the most amazing season of his career, right? He goes ahead, throws 48 touchdowns, five interceptions is the league's most valuable player in a year when there was stellar quarterback play from Lamar Jackson and, um, Josh Allen and Patrick Holmes, et cetera. And what basically has happened is that the Packers seem to kind of want this, like this transfer point, right? Where this, this inflection point in the organization to go ahead and happen either, you know, next season or the season beyond. And Rogers wants clarity and he wants commitment from a financial perspective, certainly on his future in green Bay and the Packers have yet to give it to him. And so he's basically like, all right, well, you're, that's how you're going to play this. This is how I'm going to play this and kind of air the dirty laundry out in public. Yeah. And you know, there's, it's, it's a situation that can be looked at a lot of different ways. And yes, you are correct. I am a Packers fan. And you can say, look, he has arguably the best wide receiver available right now in Devonte Adams. He has by consensus, the best left tackle in David Bakhtiari. It's not as though he's kind of unsupported by this team. But there's been this narrative. I mean, he's also got an Aaron Jones, the kind of kind of multi-talented running back that you would think a guy like Rodgers would like. It, but there's been this narrative. They won't get him the weapons. They won't, you know, they won't do what Tampa Bay did for Brady. We should talk about Brady. There's The specter of Brady looms over this, you know, I, I think. He looms over know, everything. Over everything. But, you know, <laughs> I mean, I mean, one of the things that keeps Rodgers out of a conversation about is he the best of all time or something like that, you just can't even talk about that because of the kind of results Tom Brady has. Yes, um, that is incredibly fair. When you have a guy who's 43 years old, wins a super, wins his seventh Super Bowl with his new team after adjusting to a new system, new coaching, like new everything. I mean, Brady is just a remarkable in every, every possible way. Um, but Brady is also sort of this force multiplier for disruption this offseason because I think that a lot, not only did he go ahead and beat the Saints to send Drew Brees into retirement, but he goes ahead and he beats the Packers. So he goes ahead and prematurely ends Aaron Rodgers' season in Green Bay in a game in which the Packers messed up. And I, I might think you might agree with me here, Colin, in their coach, Matt LaFleur, not entrusting Rodgers on fourth down late in the game to go ahead and try to uh, score the tying touchdown and instead going for a field goal, which they converted. They gave the ball back to Tampa and Packers never get the ball back and they and they lose. Um, and then in the Super Bowl, Brady throws three touchdown passes and Russell Wilson is there and he's seeing how well Brady gets protected and thinks, hey, wouldn't that be great if I had that same sort of protection in Seattle where I've been sacked to death the last nine seasons? And so people want what Brady has, but it's almost impossible for everyone else to get what Brady has. I just want to go back to that field goal because, in fact, so one of the other things that's been happening in the offseason, and we should say, Rodgers is not really your typical pro athlete in a lot of ways. He's interested in a lot of things. Uh, he His offensive linemen have had to learn that he will frequently quote from the movie The Princess Bride to them. Uh, so if they're walking back after a missed block or something, he may go, inconceivable! Uh, and, <laughs> uh, you know, 
he's he's been kind of a thought leader on his team in terms of issues of race. Then he played Celebrity Jeopardy. He did really well at it. He was the champion of Celebrity Jeopardy the season he did it. Uh, and and then he guest hosted regular Jeopardy now that Alex Trebek is gone. And I don't think anybody expected that much, but he was really, really good at that too. But this interesting thing happened on his first day of hosting, which is that sometimes a contestant at the end with Final Jeopardy, if they don't know the answer to the question, they'll write something else uh, on their little board there. So one of these guys writes on his board because he doesn't know the answer, the answer to the question that day was Mr. Rogers. He didn't know the answer. So instead, he just wrote, who wanted to kick that field goal? Now, Ben, we're going to play to you Aaron Rodgers walking over to that guy afterwards <laughs> when you know the music's playing. You know, we don't get to hear what they're saying, but the audio is available. Here it goes. I can see a podium. <laughs> and I was like, please put something about the field goal on it. <laughs> <laughs> You will always be all time in my book, my friend. My first show, and that's what you said at the end. Thank you for that. So that's Rogers thanking this guy for tweaking Matt LaFleur and the Packers for this bad call. When I say, Ben, that this guy holds grudges, I mean, he holds grudges. He is... I mean, I've spoken to him a few times, and I, I mean, interest of full disclosure, Colin, I really enjoy speaking with him. I mm-hmm. like talking to smart people, regardless of what they do, and Aaron is a very smart person. But he holds grudges like nobody else. And to get to your sort of, uh, uh, what you were saying before about like the Irish grudge aspect of it, um, he's he has an incredible memory to begin with. Like, he does not forget a thing. And that is particularly that is particularly so in matters where he feels slighted whether it's his family who he hasn't reportedly spoken to in a very long time or um the Niners not drafting him with a number one pick or anything else that he really internalizes those and I think that what was interesting this past season of course as we you know alluded to was that he is slighted by the Packers then going ahead and um you know drafting Jordan Love and he you know turns in that into the most amazing season of his career to go ahead and prove to the Packers that he can still play at an MVP level at age 37, which is just, just remarkable, but you're right. Like nothing gets by him. And, and I think where we might be going with this is, is how everything kind of broke and played out on Thursday before the draft and having Adam Schefter break the news on the SPN that Aaron Rodgers didn't want to go back to the Packers. And he was really, really, angry that was incredibly calculated there's nothing that aaron Rodgers says or does especially says that does not have a lot of thought or intent behind it and so even if he might not have been the one and i'm not in the business of you know trying to outsource or figure this stuff out but he definitely knew what was going on so yes although some people would say that his timing is a little bit off by the time this had sort of filtered out and right. kind of dawned on people a lot of teams had had solved their quarterback problem or at least attempted dramatically to solve their quarterback problem either by trading up in the draft to to get a better pick or by trading for another quarterback. So the number of teams that might have been in the market for Rodgers was a little bit smaller. And anyway, the Packers said they weren't taking any calls anyway. Uh, right. There's an odd standoff that's here. They, they can sort of compel him to stay with the team, not trade him. He could retire. He could sit out. Uh, but he doesn't have as many options as, say, an NBA 
NBA player might in, in some situation like this. Correct. And, you know, Aaron Rodgers is one of the best quarterbacks in the world and who has ever lived, but he's one of 22 starters, right? He doesn't play defense. And so if you are an NBA star, you can go ahead. I mean, I'm sure like we all went ahead and saw, you know, the last dance, right. With, Mm -hmm. with, um, you know, with Michael Jordan, that incredible documentary from, from last, from last spring. And there was a report by Charles Robinson uh, on Yahoo over the weekend that said that Rogers wants to force the Packers general manager out. Now, if Michael Jordan couldn't force out Jerry Krause and they had an awful relationship, Jordan was one of five on that team, one of five starters, and he had more influence than Rogers does. And so something is going to have to give at some point. And I think everyone has a price and maybe the Packers will go ahead and meet that price for Rogers. But as we've said, that he is a man of conviction and resolve. And I, I don't know. He seems like the guy who is going to want to take a stand here and is willing to go ahead and do whatever it takes if, in fact, he really, really, really does want to not ever play for the Packers again. Yeah, and there's a possibility. I don't know how real it is to you. You'd have a better sense of this. But So here's a guy. He is a little bit more multidimensional. Plus, he's you know he's had some very interesting relationships with actors uh, like uh, Olivia Munn uh, uh, and uh, the race car driver Danica Patrick. And now uh, he's been engaged to Shailene Woodley. He really likes hosting Jeopardy. I mean, I think he he's talked about how he could even figure out how to do the job and be an NFL quarterback at the same time. I mean, there's some... There are some quarterbacks where it's hard to imagine them sitting out a season. What are they going to do? You know, <laughs> they don't read books. They don't, they're not, you know, they're, they can't relax into anything else. But you could sort of picture Rodgers. I mean, he's so competitive and so focused on football. He's a contradiction that way, you know, because he also has this other set of, of interests that probably would keep him at least somewhat satisfied for a short amount of time. Yeah. And, and I mean, I don't think the retirement is really, is really an option and I'll, and I'll explain why. I think the first thing is that he has gone ahead. He has gone ahead and said that he wants to play into his forties. And so I don't think he's at the point of wanting to go ahead and walk away and have last year, especially the way that last season ended be the last, you know, his last hurrah. Second thing here is that there's a little bit of precedent in that, um, Rogers shares the same agent as Carson Palmer, who back in 2011 was traded to the Raiders after demanding a trade from the Bengals. And he threatened to retire rather than play for them again. And, um, you know, the Bengals didn't budge for a very long time and they put him, uh, beginning the season on the, you know, on the do not report list. And he stayed there for a while, but then six weeks into the season, when the Raiders quarterback got hurt, there he went off to off to Oakland. There went Palmer off to Oakland, and he got his wish. And so there's precedent here, and I think that his agent, you know, done, you know, athletes first represents a lot of quarterbacks. They have a lot of experience on this uh, on this front. Um, but um, man, I'm I mean, I'm fascinated. I don't know how this is going <laughs> to play out, but I think that retirement is certainly the least likely. It's a matter of whether the Packers decide to trade him after June 1st, which is a pivotal kind of time for salary cap reasons, or if they can really work something out with him and compensate him and give him sort of the long-term commitment um, that Rodgers craves. 
You know, it's he's gotten one form of revenge already, which is, you know, the, the you cover draft weekend, you know what it's like. And what happens afterwards is that every team gets graded, you know, I mean, actual letter grades by all kinds of different uh, media organizations. And like the Packers could have cloned Bart Starr and four woolly mammoths to block for him. And it just wouldn't have made any difference drafted them, you know, sure. but it wouldn't have made all anybody said about the Packers. Who cares who you drafted? You're losing Aaron Rodgers. So, I mean, he's kind of had at least the, the first act of revenge. Yeah, and 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 you know, we can we can debate about the timing of that week on Thursday. And a little this is a little inside football stuff, but a lot of times guys like Schefter or Ian Rappaport of NFL Network that they hold on to stuff that they might not have been told that Thursday, but they've kind of held on to it for a couple of days or however long to sort of maximize the bombshell aspect of that scoop. And so it was certainly a calculated point in going ahead and releasing the information. But if Rogers really, really, really wanted out, he should have done this in March, in February, to give the Packers and other teams times to really assess the situation, to figure out potential trades, to go ahead and say, okay, well, we're going to try to go ahead and grant you your wish. Because if this is really all that's communicated, and I'm not saying that it was, Five hours before the the draft starts, which is this major tentpole event on the NFL calendar, teams have been preparing for months for this day. That's not enough time to go ahead and make such a franchise-altering decision. Absolutely. Ben Spiegel, thank you so much. Sports reporter for the New York Times covering the NFL since 2011. My pleasure, Colin. Okay, thanks thanks for for being with us. Okay, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about something way more NPR, uh, specifically why cows like to listen to cello music. See, that's very NPR. Just to pass the time There's something wrong here There can be no denying One of us is changing Or maybe we just stop trying And it's too late, baby, now It's too late Though we really did try to make it Something We've got the, we play a little cello and we got cows there gathering outside in uh, in the hallway of the studio. They take their elevator or something. How do they get up here? Uh, cows like to listen to the cello. Uh, we're going to explain that to you. By the way, that that's the guitar uh, cello duo Boyd meets Girl. In case you want to, you know, download them. Uh, so joining us now to explain this and how it all played out in Denmark is Lisa Abend, a journalist based in Copenhagen and the author of The Sor- Sorcerer's Apprentices, A Season in the Kitchen at Adria's El Bulli. I hope I said that right. I probably didn't. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Time Magazine, and The Atlantic, among other publications. And it was in the New York Times, in fact, that we learned uh, about uh, a, uh, I don't know how to say it, an attraction uh, that exists between 
elite cellists and cows uh, in Denmark. <laughs> so uh, explain, we'll, we'll begin the whole thing. But first of all, Lisa Abend, uh, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And, and the attraction is definitely mutual. Right. So first of all, there's this idea, and it probably tracks back to the Wagyu cattle in Japan, the so, so-called Kobe beef, who are it's often described that that they're pampered. You might have used that word too, you know. Although when you consider how it all ends up, they're not that pampered. Uh, but they get massages and special environments, and supposedly they do listen to classical music, uh, and that that helps them either relax or put on more fat, or who knows what it's supposed to do. Uh, but there's that idea anyway that that something good happens when cows uh, listen to uh, certain kinds of music. So this idea kind of spilled over uh, into. Uh, some cattle farmers uh, and a nearby cello school. Uh, sketch it out for us. Yes. Well, the the cello school exists in a town about an hour outside of Copenhagen, a very rural environment. The cellist who started it was himself uh, at a, the elite level. His name is Jacob Shaw. He's still he's still quite young. He's only 32. And he had toured the world uh, as a soloist and had spent some time in Japan as a result. And so after he had started this school in, in, uh, in Denmark, um, he was talking one day with one of his neighbors, uh, Moens and Louise Holgaard, and they are cattle farmers. They, raid, they raise Hereford cows. And it just so turns out that uh, Moens is a classical music fan. In fact, he sits on the board of the Copenhagen Philharmonic Orchestra. And Jacob got this idea. He started explaining what he had seen in Japan with those Kobe beef and wondered if Moens might be interested in experimenting on his own cows. And of course, Moens loved the idea. They started by by playing just from a boombox in the barn, they play classical music every day for the cows. And then about once a week, Jacob and whatever musicians are in residence at the Scandinavian Cholo School go over and play a live concert. Right. So, and there's some interesting subtext to this on the cellist side too. We can talk about the cow subtext a little bit more in just a second. But um, what's happening at this school? I should say actually that the cello, um, the foray that we played coming in here, the cello is being played by my niece Laura Metcalf, who is a professional cellist and who also tours the world. And uh, you know, I've had a little bit uh, of a ringside view of how hard it is. Uh, even if you are fabulously talented uh, and incredibly dedicated, how hard it is to have that kind of career. They're, they're just the structure, the infrastructure for it just doesn't necessarily exist. It's even worse, obviously, during the pandemic when just everything was shutting down anyway. But that's part of the goal of this school that you're talking about, right, is to say you, you don't just have to play the cello really well. You have to get ready for a whole lot of other ways that life can interfere with with your success. Exactly. Jacob is really sort of devoted to, to helping young musicians who are going to find themselves really quickly swept up in a profession that has all kinds of demands, as you, as you explained, that go well beyond just playing their instrument beautifully. And there's also a tendency, I think, now within the classical music world 
um, to always be on the lookout for the next big thing, which usually means the next younger person, musician to come along. And so a lot of times these musicians will feel kind of like sucked up and, and sort of and chewed up and then spit out. And so the school is to uh, helps prepare them for that kind of thing, but it does it in this very beautiful, quiet, tranquil, rural atmosphere where they also get to go fishing for dinner and dig around in the garden. And so it gives them kind of a, a break and a grounding and as it kind of helps them work on attaining a bit of work-life balance at the same time. I think also, you know, one of the ways for good or ill that classical music has survived is by trying a lot of different things. And so, I mean, I've worked with one orchestra in particular where I've sort of seen how that goes. That I mean, it wouldn't be crazy to, 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 to think, it would be a little bit crazy, it would be not too crazy to think that five years from now somebody would say, hey, we want to do this thing uh, with this particular orchestra where we want to have some cows on the stage. Is that okay with you? Uh, I mean, it, it is... The idea, anyway, that these these musicians would be uh, trooping over to stables or barns or whatever to play for these very appreciative cows. And there's kind of a lesson in there, too, right, which is don't assume that this is always going to go, you know, in the most orderly uh, white tie and tails way that you might have pictured it. Yeah, you know, um, Jacob said something to me that I thought was really interesting. He said that classical music has been around for 400 years. It's not, the music itself isn't the problem. The problem is how do you get um, audiences for it? And and so he he's not so interested in, you know, changing the music itself to incorporate electronic or hip hop or anything like that. He wants to leave the music intact, but see what he can do to entice other audiences. And that doesn't just mean cows. It also means people who might come because they get to listen to the music while sitting next to some cows. And and you've had this experience now, right? I think you yeah, even last you, you even had to buy scalped tickets from a cow. <laughs> uh, no, ex, ex, <laughs> explain explain what this was like. Explain your experience. Well, um, I actually was lucky enough to have two experiences. I attended a very small um, private. Uh, performance in the barn uh, the first time that I, I went out there to to speak with Jacob. And then I was at the concert itself. And because of corona restrictions, they couldn't have the concert in the barn so that it was in a field alongside the pasture where the cows were kept. So the cows, it was sort of in a, under a marquee tent and there was a, a fence that, that kept the cows from coming into the tent, but they were right there next to us. Um, and they they definitely uh, had their preferences. They started out um, for the first few pieces, they were pressed right up against the, the fence and listening apparently uh, with, with great appreciation and attention. Um, but as the, the concert went on and as the music became perhaps a little more experimental and a little less, uh, melodic, they seem to lose interest. And then they came back at the very end in time for some list. Yeah. So no, there's that been that truism in classical music for a long time that if you you know if you're gonna program a lot of ligati and stuff like that, the cows are not gonna show up. They just yeah. they won't <laughs> everybody they don't, they, don't, they don't get that. Um Poolink is probably their cutoff. So um 
So, yeah, I mean, I, we should say one last thing here, which is this is just me perhaps extrapolating unreasonably. But if I were going to pick an instrument that cows might like, I would probably pick the cello. There's a way in which the pitch and sound of the cello is a little bit like lowing, right? There's, I mean, you know, you'd kind of expect them to like this sound better than a high-pitched violin or flute. Good point. Although I have to point out one of the interesting things about this uh, having done this story is it's gotten tremendous feedback. And if you go through the comments that the story itself um, sort of generated, uh, you, I've heard from all of these farmers or people associate you who have relatives who have their own cows and have also tried playing music for them. And apparently as much as they love classical music, they're also pretty partial to the Beatles. <laughs> all right. There goes my theory. Um, all right. Well, this uh, first of all, we recommend that people uh, uh, read this story by Lisa Abend. It's in the New York Times. When the cellos play, the cows come home. Thanks very much for talking to me, Lisa. Thanks for having me. And we're going to go out with more Boyd versus girl. No, boy, <laughs> Boyd meets girl. <laughs> and uh, yes, this is a Michael Jackson tune. If you listen long enough, you'll, you'll see. Hello, and it's good to be back in the studio. I was uh, off last week to deal with some family matters. Uh, and um, in the studio with me is Scott Pastor, our technical producer, making all this stuff sound good, making it happen as it should. Uh, the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show is Betsy Kaplan, who is also the episode producer today. So thanks uh, also to her. So we're going from cows to wasps. I'm not sure what kind of taxonomic jump that is, uh, but I bet somebody else will be able to explain it to me. Most likely our guest here, Sarian Sumner, a professor of behavioral ecology at the University College London, the co-founder of Soapbox Science and the Big Wasp Survey. Uh, what attracted our attention to her is an article in the conversation called Wasps, Why I Love Them and Why You Should Too. Welcome to our show. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So I, I confess to being the kind of wasp-phobic human that uh, you characterize in, in your essay. I mean, it's not that I want to kill every wasp I see, but if there's one in the house, my my only thought, you know, is is not. What kind of really interesting role is this animal playing in the ecosystem? I wonder what else it does besides maybe sting me. All, all I want is it out of the house or dead. Those are the two options. Now, uh, you say an awful lot of people do simplify things to that level. Yeah, I mean, you are. The good news is that you are typical. So don't worry there. You are a very typical. You have you're showing very typical reactions to wasps. Most people will 
flap, reach for the nearest um, magazine or fly swat to, to get that wasp out of their house. Um, and, and the reason for that is that there's the fear of them, of them stinging you, um, which is, you know, which is fine. They do sting and, and no one, even me, who really likes wasps, no, even I don't like getting stung by a wasp. Um, but the, 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 the point is, I think that, you know, for your listeners to think about is that bees sting as well. And yet if there was a bee in your kitchen, you would be trying really hard to help that bee out, to let the cute little bee find its way out the window because well, the reason you, you tolerate them is because those bees, you know, they do an important job, which is to pollinate crops, to pollinate natural um, areas. So you know that they've got a really important role in the environment. Right. And because I'm... of that, you tolerate them. Right. I mean, they're, you know, I mean, in fact, beekeeping is kind of all the rage right now. My former colleague, John Dankosky, was just on Science Friday talking about his goal of keeping bees. People, there are no wasp keepers, or if there are, they, they keep a very low profile. People don't talk about this. And, and even Aristotle, as you point out, drew invidious comparisons between wasps and bees. Bees are good guys. Wasps are bad guys. So we need to talk about why that's wrong. And, and you enumerate a, a lot of different reasons uh, why, aside from whatever beauty they have, whatever kinds of interest there is in watching them, and you watch them very, very carefully, um, there are some actual practical reasons uh, to like them as well. So where should we start? Well, I guess maybe start with their predatory nature, which actually has a a crop-protecting aspect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In the same way that bees are pollinators, so we appreciate them for that, what we call ecosystem service, the things that they do for us that we benefit from. Wasps are nature's pest controllers. So they hunt the other the other insects that you might hate even as much as you do the wasp. So if you've got your own garden, it might be caterpillars on your on your um your 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 lettuces or your cabbages. Um, or aphids on your tomato plants, or if you're a farmer, then it may be those uh, those caterpillars that are eating your crops, which are really, you know, that's what you depend on for your livelihood. And so you might reach for the pesticides to kill those um, those caterpillars. And I think what we need to be doing is to looking more holistically at the natural enemies that are around us and are available on our doorsteps. And one of those are, are is is the wasp. Right. I actually keep potter's wasps in my sweater drawer just to keep the moth population down. Um, and uh, But it's sort of like, you know, philosophically, it's kind of interesting because, I mean, there's there's two ways to express this. One of them is, and I think you, on behalf of the wasps, as a wasp advocate, you know, kind of went out of your way in this piece to say, look, they are worth money, you know, and just in the sense that they pr- protect uh, crops from damage, that they protect uh, uh, other us from other kinds of insect damage, that in a very very sort of anthropocentric way, we should like wasps. I yeah. mean, the other way to look at it is, look, they're part of an ecosystem. They're, play, they're, they're Almost everything in an ecosystem has some kind of function, needs to get eaten by something else that needs to eat or whatever. So don't just arbitrarily kill something because you don't like it. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I think the reason we try and put an economic value on these insects, though, on these, these facets of nature, are that it gives people a reason to value them. Um, and so, you know, valuing something because it's, you know, it, it's cute, it's charismatic is one thing, but valuing something because without it, our economy would struggle or we wouldn't be able to feed, meet, meet our food security issues, then, then it suddenly brings things into sharp focus and you start to value that facet of nature. And that's exactly what we've done with the bees. 
And so the point that I'm trying to make in, the, in this essay is that we need to be doing the same for things like wasps, which are very much misunderstood, you know, the most maligned animal, insects probably in the insect kingdom. So... Well, let's talk about them as pollinators, because this is also is another way that people do not think about wasps. Exactly, but wasps, wasps yeah. are very effective pollinators. Tell us about that. Well, we don't know how effective they are, to be honest. But what we do know is that they do visit flowers. And it's by visiting flowers and moving from one flower to another that they transfer pollen. And that's that's what pollination is. That's what bees do. Um, and wasps, although their prime role in ecosystems is as a predator, they catch the prey and they... If they're a social wasp, they bring that prey, that insect prey, back to their nest and feed it to the larvae. And it's the larvae that are the carnivores. Um, the adult wasps themselves, so those wasps that bother you in your kitchen or your barbecue outside, those wasps, those individuals are actually um, vegetarians, just like a bee is. And they have to get sugar from somewhere. So um, the social wasps will get the sugar that they need to survive from the larvae that they feed in the nest. They bring it. They bring a chewed up caterpillar. They feed it to the larvae and the larva will give them a kind of sugary reward, which is very nutritious. Um, but they have to often supplement that sugary reward, that nutrition by visiting flowers or perhaps your picnic. Um, and so by but but the focus on the flowers, this kind of idea of that there are wasp flowers is really understudied. And in a big review that we've just published, um, we looked through the literature for evidence of wasps in interactions with flowers. And we found that wasps were visiting almost a thousand different species of flowers across over a hundred different plant families. And most of those are actually kind of opportunistic visits. So unlike many bees, wasps are not, we don't think at least, we don't think they're very specialist in the types of plants that they visit to pollinate. And they don't have the different kind of um, evolved tongue lengths that the bees have. So some bees have very long tongues, which are important for accessing nectar in particular kinds of plants. Um, wasps don't have very long tongues, so they're a little bit like the short-tongued bees in that respect. Um, so we've got these data on, on which plants wasps visit, but as yet we really don't have any clue as to how effective they are as pollinators. So what, I'm, what, what we're trying to say at the moment is that there is the potential that they could be important pollination, um, but we don't yet know how, how much and what kind of plants they could be most effective for. Right. Well, I mean, another indication that this might be the case is that certain orchids have adapted or appear to have adapted in such a way as to make male wasps. I mean, we can talk about uh, sugar in various terms. Uh, they have adapted in such a way as to make male wasps want to make sexy time with these orchids, which, I mean, I assume that the orchids would not have done uh, unless there was a kind of pollination advantage from it. Yeah, that's right. And and the orchid is a lovely example of an obligate uh, pollination relationship where the, the orchid, the plant, um, relies completely on the wasp for pollination. So it's it, there's been very strong evolutionary selection for those orchids to attract the right pollinators. And they've done this by mimicking the back end of a female um, wasp and so the male wasp will come along and try and mate with that with the copulate with that plant with that flower and then in the in the process get some pollen dobbed on him and then he'll go off to the next flower and try again and in doing so he's he's spreading the pollen from plant to plant and pollinating so it's very clever evolution is very clever and it's a fabulous example of co-evolution 
So there's a, a, another way to think about this, which is that wasps are edible. Uh, wasps, uh, probably the future uh, of the human species is going to involve eating more insects anyway for various reasons. But, but wasps uh, and their larvae, I guess, can be eaten, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And there are over 3 billion people in the world who eat insects all the time. Um, and certainly in the US and the UK, it's not a particularly popular uh, choice of dish. But in parts of Asia, it's, you know, insects are one of the, the things that you go to the market to buy. Um, and we we looked at the, in our big review of wasp, uh, wasp ecosystem services, we looked to see what uh, proportion of um, insect uh, food was represented by wasps. And it was about 5%, which is still quite low. But nonetheless, in certain parts of the world, wasps are incredibly um, popular as a source of nutrition, particularly their larvae, which are very high in protein and low in fat. And if you think about it, if anyone, any of your listeners has seen a, a social wasp nest, um, there is a huge, if you find a nest and you catch it, then there's a huge amount of protein in those nests. They're really heavy with larvae if you get it at the right time of year. Um, and so harvesting those larvae, from, particularly from social wasp nests, is, uh, is, could, can be very lucrative. Um, and the Japanese in particular go crazy for these, uh, these wasp larvae. Um, and they will pay up to um, $100 a kilo for a, a wasp nest um, so they can feast on the larvae. Um, I'd just like to say to our listeners that nothing our guest has said uh, should encourage you to go out and try to find a wasp nest to eat its contents. You need special training for that kind of thing. You need to know what you're doing. But, yeah, the wasps themselves, if you've ever had them with uh, Cajun spices and you kind of blacken them with Brussels sprouts, they're just delicious. Um, all right. So um, the uh, another thing, I mean, uh, th there's a whole world of possible – uh, medicines that exist in nature that we just kind of maybe don't fully understand how to extract, how to exploit, uh, although in some cases we've done that very successfully. And there are some indications that wasps have some chemicals of medical value, maybe even a pretty significant cancer-fighting chemical in them. That's right, yeah. So there are kind of two main biomedical products that wasps could be useful for producing. But it's important to stress that this is very much pre-clinical stage you know there is no real sort of um applied application going on with these yet but those two things are um antibiotics and as you mentioned a potential cancer um cure or cancer treatment um and they both come from the venom of wasps so the very thing that you hate about wasps could potentially be a kind of you know a sitting pharmacological Pandora's box. Um, and the reason for that is, of course, that wasps, in order to hunt, they uh, were particularly the solitary wasp, which will hunt a spider or a caterpillar or a fly or a cockroach. They sting it to paralyze it, but not kill it. So they paralyze it um, and they take it back to their, their underground um, burrow that they will have dug and they bury it and they lay their egg onto the prey. And then when that egg hatches, it eats into the prey and lives off it. So in effect, the mother wasp has put a living larder in the ground or in a pot in, that she might have built. And, and, and she just seals it up and leaves it. So she's effectively leaving her, her offspring alone with this, you know, sort of a paralyzed carcass, a paralyzed um, living larder. So she needs to be really sure that that prey is not going to be diseased because that, of course, would kill her offspring. Um, and the way she does this is by injecting 
um, antibiotics in it. So as well as having, her venom is incredibly complex in, in, in many ways. Um, it has to paralyze the prey, but it also has to um, make sure the prey stays safe and, and, and fresh. Um, and they do this by, by having a, a different array of, of, of antibiotics. Um, some of those antibiotic properties have been tested against gram-positive and gram-negative bacteria, including some that are of known um, problems for humans, like streptococcus, and they appear to be quite effective. Um, so perhaps in this era of antibiotic resistance, uh, the wasp venom should be looked at, at a little bit more closely. Um, and then the other thing, um, as I mentioned, is this potential for their treating treatment of cancer. Um, and this comes to a particular peptide in the venom called mastoparin. Um, and the evidence, there's not a huge amount of research on this, it's quite a new area, but the evidence so far suggests that they, this, these mastoparins can be effective in um, targeting cancer cells. Um, so that's a really exciting area of research. Yes. Well, to be continued. Meanwhile, Syrian Sumner, I'm told it's your birthday. So thank you for uh, spending a little bit of time on your birthday with us. I assume you're now going to go out and look at wasps and lie on your back and contemplate oh, well, their if beauty. Only. It's the evening here in the UK oh, that's and right. it's lashing down with rain and it is a 40 <laughs> mile an hour winds outside. So I think I'm just going to settle down with a nice glass of wine. That sounds like a very, very good suggestion. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Syrian Sumner, professor of behavioral ecology in University College London. Uh, her article, Wasps, Why I Love Them and Why You Should Too, was in the conversation. And thanks again to everybody who helped out with today's show. Uh, I'll never look at wasps the same way. There used to be a place called the Jordan Pond House on Acadia National Park. It's probably still there. And they would serve popovers with big pots of jam. But like on an afternoon, the jam would be literally swarming with yellow jackets, which are wasps. And so you like you couldn't even yet ask the yellow jackets permission to have some jam. So I guess I'll be politer to them next time. Will little bugs have littler bugs on their backs to bite them? Littler bugs have still littler bugs. So as.